Father, we thank you this morning that you are a good father, that you come to our rescue, that when we call out that you do not ignore us, you don't avoid us, but you come to us, you come running to us. So we thank you for that. I pray that you would come this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill this place, that you would fill our hearts, that we would be so aware of your presence. And Jesus, I pray that we'd be attuned to your voice today, that as your sheep, we would hear your voice and be so attentive to it. Father, I pray over those today who are weary, who are tired, who need strength. I pray for those who feel like they're barely holding on. I pray that they would know that what is holding them there is not their strength, but yours. Father, for those um, who are just walking in joy today, I thank you for that, and I pray that they would experience your presence and that joy. Jesus, we pray that you would speak today, because we are listening. In your name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. So glad to be with you this morning. Those of you who are here um, in the room, those of you joining us online, I'm Stephanie Tennant. I'm the discipleship director here at Regen, also Kyle's wife. Um, So yeah, just thrilled to be with you this morning and be able to share with you from God's word. Uh, Last summer, Kyle, Jack, and I took a trip to South Dakota to visit my parents. And one of my favorite memories from that trip was the day that we drove to Wyoming to hike around Devil's Tower uh, Monument. And I think I have a picture of that. Amanda, I'm going to have to kind of... Um, it's, it's beautiful. And I remember it was a sunny day. The sky was blue. We were driving. Now, as I'm sure you can kind of tell about us or know about us, we're not really a hiking family. We're kind of more of like a walking on pavement kind of family. Which is why I really love the trail around Devil's Tower, because you're like in the woods, and it's really beautiful, but it's paved. So it's a paved path, right? It's like my, my kind of perfect world. So, and I had been there a couple years before with my mom and dad. I'd been out to visit my mom um, when she, right, and she was going through cancer, and, and I went with my parents, and we walked the path, and I remembered it honestly being pretty easy. Um, but this time, uh, we had Jack, and we had a stroller. And so we, and they had changed the entrance, so what had been like a mile and a half trail was now like three miles, but we didn't realize that until about halfway through. And so, you know, we're kind of walking along, and it's great, and then all of a sudden, the path gets really narrow, and there are giant boulders all around us, which on one hand is fine, except for that the huge gaps between them would swallow our toddler. Like, you know, so I'm like, get him in the stroller, strap him in. So now we're like pushing him up this this, uh, narrow kind of steep path. And so what had been, to me, I thought, was going to be like a relatively simple, easy hike suddenly became a lot more complicated. And that didn't include all the detours he wanted to take and the snack breaks we had to stop for, for Kyle and Jack. <laughs> and it just this trip that I thought would not be that big of a deal all of a sudden got more challenging. And I think that our journey with inner healing can kind of be the same way. What seems initially kind of simple and straightforward can suddenly develop into something that's really challenging and can even be daunting and overwhelming. And then there's this point at which we realize this is going to take a lot longer than I thought. This is not going to be just a one and done. This sermon is kind of a halfway check-in in our journey to inner healing, a time to refocus and reset. If you were a theater kid, imagine it's intermission, the first act didn't go so well, maybe there were some issues with the lights, there were some issues with lines, the props weren't where they were supposed to be. 
And the director's kind of inviting you to take a deep breath, kind of refocus, we're gonna go back out and we're gonna give it our best. Or if you're an athlete, it's the halftime talk. We lost momentum in the first half, we're way down, they're in our heads, we're not playing the way we should be or could be, so let's kind of refocus, come back together, get our minds back in the game, and go out and take momentum back and win this game. The good news is that as we kind of do that, we don't have to do it alone. It may feel like when you're on the inner healing journey that it's all on you to kind of figure out. And I think um, as we look at Hebrews 12 today, which is where we're going to turn in just a moment, there's, some, there's a lot of good news. There's some hard news, but there's some good news, and that news is that we don't go alone. So let's look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 13. I'm going to start with just the first four verses. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in a struggle against sin. The temptation in pursuing inner healing of any kind, whether that's counseling, spiritual direction, inner healing prayer, is thinking that if I just do one, two, three, everything will be resolved, and I'll find total and complete emotional, spiritual, physical relief. When the reality is that inner healing is a complicated process that can involve all sorts of things, from medication to therapy to spiritual direction and prayer, and maybe all together, and still even with all of those things, the journey can feel hard and be a little overwhelming. Growing up in the church, when I thought about this race talked about in Hebrews 12, in my mind, it was just really a matter of obedience, right? Like, if I can just live a good enough life for Jesus, make it to the end of my life with my faith basically intact, then, phew, like, I did it, right? Like, I made it. But as we've kind of been processing our own lives, as we've been walking through this series, I've come to think that this race is actually a journey of healing. One that isn't fully complete until heaven, but one where we will also see breakthrough and areas of healing here on earth. We aren't just called to try and survive, to make it to the end, limping, tired, broken at the end. We're actively engaging in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Mature and complete, lacking nothing, as James says in verse, um, James 1, verse 4. This process has moments of victory, of joy, of exhilaration, and moments of failure and hardship and sorrow. But overall, its trajectory is one of Christ-likeness. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. But what to do when this journey feels like what it really is? And that's a marathon. It feels endless. And to be honest, that's where I've been a lot the last few weeks. This sermon might be just as much for me as it is for you all. Last summer, I intentionally pursued inner healing around miscarriages and infertility and found some real healing and freedom, which I'm so grateful for. And then I had another session of inner healing prayer this spring, right after we found out we were pregnant and was dealt with some wounds from earlier in my life. And to be honest, since that time, it's been a real struggle to hold on to the territory that I had taken through inner healing, and to not just want to numb out when things feel hard, 
which for me basically means sleeping and reading historical British mystery novels, because I am that exciting. <laughs> Many days have been praying for the courage to stand firm to do what's right in front of me, if that's laundry, dishes, taking care of Jack, meeting with people, doing stuff here at the church, no matter how I'm feeling emotionally, to step into what God has called me to do for that day, regardless of how I feel. It's meant finding joy and, and struggling to find joy in the midst of uncertainty. And to be frank, it's meant asking for prayer and being vulnerable with friends about how much I'm struggling over and over and over and over again. And that's hard. It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to kind of come back and say, could you pray for me again? I'm struggling again. But that's part of the race being running together. That's part of the crowd that surrounds us, is those people that go with us, that pray with us, that hold us up. So as we see here in Hebrews 12, this journey of following Jesus and finding healing is like a race, but really a marathon. Now, if you're like me, that's really bad news. Like, running is not fun to me. And finishing a marathon is like, I might as well dream of becoming a billionaire, right? Like, it's not going to happen. I'd be much more comfortable watching from the sides, cheering others on. But the truth is that as Christians, we don't get to make that choice. We don't just get to sit on the sidelines and watch others run the race. And we don't get to do that because it says it here in Hebrews 12, we're following Jesus. And he, we're following his example, and he ran the race, so we run the race. And not just Jesus, but all those who have gone before us in the faith have run the race. And so that's what we do. We step in. We do what those who have gone before us do, and we run the race as faithfully as we can. Pursuing Jesus, pursuing healing. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't just invite us to run the race, but gives us some specific instructions on how to run. And I just want to focus on a couple of them today, because there's all sorts of wonderful things in this passage. But the two I want to focus on today are strip off every weight, especially sin, and don't give up when God disciplines or corrects us. So they're really fun stuff. Get excited. In this passage, the author of Hebrews instructs us to strip off every weight that slows us down. And I have a picture um, of, yes, so if any of you are um, Gilmore Girls fans, this is Lorelai Gilmore. She's like trying to go on this hike, and she's spent all evening shoving every item in the world in her backpack. And so here she is setting off. Spoiler alert, she never actually makes the journey. She just dumps the backpack and goes home. Um, but I feel like this is what some of us feel like. We feel like we're trying to follow Jesus, but we've got this giant backpack of stuff that we're trying to lug behind us. And if you feel like walking with Jesus has and always will be challenging to the point of defeat, to the point that you can barely take a step forward, which is basically where she was at, I want to invite you to ask the Father to help you kind of look at your life, to examine it and show you what are the things that are weighing you down. Like, what could these weights be? What is the, could the author be referring to? They seem to be separate from sin, which the author references as tripping us up. I think these weights can be a couple of things. I think they can be unhealed wounds, and I think they can be habits or patterns that we've adopted as coping mechanisms to help us get through our lives. Some of these things I want to address right now are sinful. Some aren't really sinful or bad in and of themselves, but maybe it's how we use them to numb out or to distract ourselves or to avoid dealing with the wounds. It's these things that keep us from running with endurance the race set before us. These coping mechanisms, these habits that we have, um, I think they can distract us from a couple things. I think they can distract us from pain, but I also think they can sometimes just distract us from the mundane nature of the day in and day out pattern of our lives. 
going to work, washing clothes, feeding kids, cleaning the house, buying groceries, right? Like there's just sometimes this a numbness that sets in when our lives just feel like there's just nothing exciting, nothing to look forward to, I'm just kind of doing the same things. And so we start to look for other things to give us kind of that excitement or that something to look forward to. The problem with these things is that they shield us from having to face the reality of the pain or the mundane of our lives. And I kind of want to just talk briefly about two general categories I kind of think of coping mechanisms. One is numbing. So I think these are maybe somewhat two different types of people or maybe different seasons. I'm definitely more of a numbing person. Um, So numbing people, it's like TV, video games, um, novels, drugs or alcohol, sleeping, food, shopping, and maybe just avoiding people. Maybe just like, I can't be around anyone right now. I just need to be alone. I just want to be by myself all the time and just kind of exist in isolation. And then I think there are other people who are more distraction type people. These are people who want to work. They work all the time. They're volunteering all the time. They're scrolling on their phone. They can't sit still. There's always something going on. Maybe they're always taking in information from cable news or blogs or the internet. Maybe they're always exercising or, or going to social events. They can't stay home. Or maybe they're just, there's always a social justice cause that they're always trumpeting and kind of posting about and can't let go of. Right? Not all of these things are bad. Some of them are actually really good. But when we use them as a barrier between us and the healing that God wants to do, when we use them as a barrier between God speaking into our life and pointing out things that are going on that he wants to address, they become an issue. They become a weight that burdens us and keeps us from running this race with endurance. The other thing that weighs us down are those wounds, the unaddressed areas of pain that hinder us from fully living into the kingdom calling that God's placed on our lives. Now, these wounds can keep us from taking risks and making courageous choices. And these lies, I think that's usually like seated in a lie, we've talked about this a lot in the series, that we believe either about ourselves or about God. And I think you can kind of recognize when that's happening in your life, when you sense that God is calling you to do something. And that call might be as simple as inviting you to participate on a ministry team here at the church or calling you to start a ministry and lead a ministry. And when you think about that, and you're pretty sure, like, I'm pretty sure this is something God's called me to, but every time you start to take a step, you think, yeah, but I'm not sure I'm enough, or I'm not sure that God's really going to see me through this, or I'm not sure that I really am gifted enough, or I'm not sure if people will respond well to me, right? There's, There's these lies planted in those moments that are being told to you, that God isn't good enough or that who he's made you to be is not enough to do the thing he's called you to do. And so if you find yourself struggling to kind of step into kingdom calling, if you find yourself struggling to be obedient to the thing that you're, you're so sure God has called you to, it could be that an unhealed wound is keeping you back, is hindering you, is a burden to you. We really can't run the race well if we're limping. We have a wound on our leg. If we're weighed down by wounds from our past or present, we can't really run the race, and we can't run it with endurance. If every time you try to step out and try something new for the kingdom, or you find yourself paralyzed by fear at the thought of living out a dream the Father has placed in your heart, I think you need to ask him, am I being weighed down by wounds? And my encouragement is to continue to press into inner healing. If you find that that's true of you, to continue to take steps to deal with that. If you find yourself held hostage by your coping mechanisms, feeling like you never have enough time, money, or energy to do what the Father is inviting you to do, 
to contribute to his kingdom, if your time is taken up by your hobbies and these things that distract and kind of numb you out, I want to encourage you to repent, to give those things up, to ask Jesus to help you reorder your life so you can be obedient to what it is that he's asking you to do, so you can be obedient to him. And you don't have to do any of this alone. Ask for help. Continue to seek that healing, but don't stay stuck. Don't be passive and afraid. And I say that as someone who I feel like did that for years. And I think when we take those steps and we start to see God meet us in those places of vulnerability, that's when we really see his power move and we see people's lives changed by what he's doing through our obedience, not through us. The second thing the author warns us of is the sin that so easily trips us up. And I mean, there's a picture of um, a runner. This is like a trail runner, right? And we see all these roots, and this person's trying to run. There's actually, like, blog posts about how to trail run and not get hurt, right? Because there's, like, all these obstacles and these things. And I thought, wow, that is such a good example of seasons of our lives, or maybe all of our lives where we're running, and it feels like everywhere you go, there's, like, sin and things that want to, like, trip you up. When we don't take sin seriously and either act like it isn't happening or when we ignore it, we run the risk of being sidelined from the race being injured, of being hurt, of hurting others. And there are all sorts of sins that we could discuss today, from those that seem small to those that seem to encompass and like consume our whole lives. Sexual sin and lying and greed and gluttony and gossip and control and anger, right? Like we know there are these endless sins. And as I'm talking about sin today, I'm thinking in this series we've talked about two kinds of sin, sin that others do to us and sin that we do. And today I'm primarily talking about the sin that we choose um, to do, or sometimes I feel like we're choosing, but that we're doing. And I want to talk about one specific area of sin today that relates to inner healing and to the church. And I don't mean like regen church, I mean kind of the American church. And that's the sin of codependency. And simply put, codependency is when we make someone else responsible for our emotional state. That's why it's like a really a sticky wicket, right? Like it can sneak up on us in no time. Like all of a sudden it's like, wow, I'm really upset by something this person is doing and I'm not really sure why they have so much power over me right now, right? Um, Crystal Ray Pohl on Psych Central, so this is kind of just like a psych definition of codependency says, codependency is a way of behaving in relationships where you persistently prioritize someone else over you and you assess your mood based on how they behave. Codependency is something of a buzzword in our culture, and I think there's a good reason for that. We see TV shows and movies that portray warped versions of love, right? Holding up an all-encompassing, consuming love for another human as the highest standard. Like, is it really love if you wouldn't, like, give your whole life to this person? I don't mean that, like, in a Christian kind of way of laying down your life, but just, like, everything about you. We stand in Target trying to buy cards and have to pick between messages of, like, you complete me to you are the most amazing person in the universe and no one could ever be more amazing than you, right? Like, sometimes I'm picking a card and I'm like, can it just say, like, I think you're really great? Like, thank you? (laughs) Like, does it have to be so, like, you are the best whatever in the whole world and you've never failed ever? I'm like, whew, that's a lot to, to live up to again. And codependency can start at an early age. It's been interesting as we're parenting Jack, I'm like trying to read a lot of different parenting type things and just kind of get different perspectives and 
Some are Christian, some are more from a worldly perspective, but one of the things I keep kind of seeing over and over again is that we have to be so careful not to teach children to be responsible for our emotions, right? And what that sounds like is, don't do that, it makes grandma sad when you do that, right? Teaching them, like, I'm responsible for grandma's emotions instead of just saying, like, that's not kind, so we don't do that, (laughs) you know? Um, Why won't you eat that? Mommy made that for you and you're hurting her feelings, right? So we're making, we're putting value statements on kids' behavior and then trying to make them responsible for adult emotions. And this can continue throughout our lives as other people seek to find their happiness through our actions, asking us to prove our love for them and kind of our devotion for them um, and in ways that we just can't with uphold, like we can't, we can't, we don't have enough love to fill that void for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. Spiritual love loves him for Christ's sake. Therefore, human love seeks to direct contact with the other person. It loves him not as a free person, but as one whom it binds to itself. It wants to gain, to capture by every means. It uses force. It desires to be irresistible, to rule. And I was, I was so struck by that idea of it desires to be irresistible, because I feel like that's, something, that's kind of a, a marketing word in our culture, right? Like women are supposed to be irresistibly beautiful. Men are supposed to be like irresistible in their masculinity, right? Like there is a undergirding of this idea that we are supposed to be irresistible to another human, but that is not God's love. That's us seeking to control and to own and to have um, an unhealthy attachment to another human being. That's only for God. That place is for God. There's been a movement in our culture away from this unhealthy enmeshment in relationships, but is so common with worldly wisdom, wisdom, it has moved us in the wrong direction. It's moved us in a direction of self-care and self-actualization. The highest good being this ideal of really discovering yourself and knowing yourself and not allowing anyone to speak against your truth, right? So we've kind of tried to step away and say, like, I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to find myself. But then once I find myself, you may not speak into who I am. You just have to deal with it. Like, this is who I am. And I think those are just opposite ends of a bad spectrum. But as followers of Jesus, how do we think about and respond to this idea of codependency? Through the years, I've had to address codependency, codependent tendencies in my own life. I've walked with other people while addressing theirs. And I find again and again that codependency is really idolatry. It's substituting substituting the created for the creator. No person or relationship can bear up under the weight that was meant for an eternal God, our creator who knit us together in our mother's wombs and who is the ultimate lover of our souls, who loves us in a way that no other being can. And when we put ourselves between God and another person, or when we allow someone else to put us between them and God, We often are hindering the healing that Jesus wants to bring to our hearts and lives, and we might even be keeping keeping them from becoming more like Jesus. So I'm going to show you a chart. I used to use this a lot when I worked with college students, and I I think it's even a good impulse. I think it's a desire to love people, to be present with them, but our desire is we see someone that we love heading towards something hard. And that might be a health thing they have no choice over. It might be decisions that they're making. It might just be, it be really anything. And so what we do is we put ourselves between them and the hard thing, right? And we think if I can cushion them 
from this hard thing. If I can stop this hard thing from happening, that's loving, right? Like that's the highest value of what I can do. But I want to kind of, I want us to look at this maybe another way. Let's go to the next slide. What if going, engaging with that hard thing makes them become more like Jesus? Helps them know the Father more deeply, know his love, know his character. And what if stepping back and allowing them to do that helps you become more like Jesus? Trusting him with their life and the outcome. Right? And so I think sometimes we, we don't think about these things um, We just don't think about them from the perspective of the Father. And I think as I have learned to step back and let God do what he's doing, so often what he's doing is so much better than what I could have ever obviously come up with. And I think we we need that encouragement sometimes to let people walk the path. And that doesn't mean we leave them alone. It doesn't mean we just step back and let it burn. I mean, we walk with them. We love them. We pray for them. We speak truth when we can to them. We encourage them. But ultimately, we remove ourselves from the responsible place of keeping them safe and of keeping them where we think they need to be to be okay. And we trust the Father with that. I mentioned earlier that I feel like codependency is an issue in the church, and here's why. I think we can unintentionally foster it when we promote only one-on-one discipleship and when we put our leaders on pedestals. Here at Regen, we're intentionally always trying to work toward having groups and ministries led by two units. When we say units here, a unit is either a single person or a married couple. So like a married couple is not two units, it's just one unit. So it could be someone who's married and then someone who's single but leading together, or a married couple and a single person leading together. And one reason for that is because we want to be intentionally turning up new leaders, and so we want other people to be involved in all of that. But the other reason is that we want to have a healthy culture of relationships where people aren't only interacting one-on-one. That can set people up for idolatry, and honestly, it can be a really heavy burden when someone you're working with is going through a hard time. If you are the only person who knows someone is going through a really difficult time, that puts so much pressure on you to be available for them. If there are two or three people that know what's happening, then you can support and encourage them together, and it makes the load lighter, right? This is why almost all of our discipleship happens in groups, and that can be a really big adjustment. If you're used to kind of being in a smaller setting where you're just sharing your issues with one person and not having other people present, um, that can be a, a change, but we find that other people even learn. That as you share your life in a group and say, this is what I'm struggling with, that other people learn from what God's doing in your life. And most importantly, the reason we do that is because we want to emulate how Jesus discipled, right? And he discipled in a group of 12 often and sometimes in a group of three, well, three disciples and himself. And so even, um, even as we think about that, we always want to be um, imitating Jesus' words, his works, and his ways. And so we want to build a community that does the same thing. And we want to have a healthy culture where healing and wholeness can happen, and it can happen in community. It can happen with others involved and coming alongside. One other thing I've sometimes observed that can kind of trip us up is how we silo information and how it can keep us from finding wholeness and healing and community. And si- what I mean by siloing is it's what happens when someone tells one piece of information to one person, and then another piece of information to this person, and then a third piece of information to this person. So I have like a little chart to help us kind of think through this. I don't think we have any Tylers here. I tried really hard to come up with a name that <laughs> nobody had here. Sorry if there's a Tyler online. It's not you. Um, So Tyler's a Christian, he's a godly guy, married, has a family, he 
uh, talks to friend number one who's godly and wise and says, hey, I've really been struggling with lying. I've just been, there's some deceit in my heart. I just, could you pray for me about that? And the friend says, yeah, let's pray, you know, let's pray about that. Gives him some good godly advice. Tyler goes to friend number two and says, "Uh, hey, there's a woman at work. I'm just really finding myself attracted to her. I've kind of been flirting with her a little bit. Could you just pray for me and hold me accountable in that relationship? Friend says, sure, I'll pray for you. Like, I'll check in with you each day. Let's see how you're doing. He goes to friend number three and says, hey, I've been hanging out in bars a lot, and I kind of feel like maybe that's not what God, like, has for me in this season. Maybe I need to adjust my behavior. And the friend says, you know, hey, I'll, I'll hold you accountable. I'll pray with you about that, right? So Tyler feels good now right? Because he's kind of confessed the things that are going on in his life. He feels off the hook. But what none of those friends realize is that Tyler has been lying to his wife about going with the woman from work to bars and hanging out after work and flirting, and that he's actually thinking about having an affair with her, right? So there's no one in his life that can speak to the full picture of what's happening because he's kind of created a barrier to, to keep protect himself by he's being honest and he's telling people what's happening, but nobody really knows what's happening, right? And so I think this is an extreme example. I don't think this is not common, but I do occasionally hear people talking, and I've even done it myself at times, to be like, well, I kind of know this is going on to this person, and yeah, I kind of sense God saying this, because I don't really want the full weight of someone to say to me, like, hey, there's something going on here. There's a pattern here that we need to address. There's something that we need to talk about. I think God's trying to get your attention, right? And so I just want to encourage you, if that's something that all of a sudden you're like, hmm, I've never thought about, or I didn't realize I did that, just to kind of bring that before the Lord and say, like, help me see where I'm doing this. Help me recognize this pattern and help me do it differently, Father. I think, and the, the point of that is that we don't want people to get tripped up by their sin, right? If Tyler told a friend the whole thing, he could, have, he could be stopped from, like, a really serious event that could really damage his relationships and his life, right? Um, but by not, he's, he's setting himself up to fail. He's setting himself up for danger. And so I think we just want to be aware of that. We want to be able to run the race with endurance. We don't want to be tripped up. We don't want to be sidelined. The second thing the author of Hebrews instructs us as we run the race in this journey of becoming like Jesus is to not give up when the Father disciplines us. So let's look at verses 5 through 11. It says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words? Just remember that these are encouraging words. God spoke to you as his children. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really one of his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So discipline. Ugh, like, is that such a bad word? <laughs> as soon as I started reading this, I was like, okay, Kyle and I were even talking about, like, in our parenting of Jack, okay, like, what does discipline look like? What does it mean to discipline? Like, God disciplines. In our culture, at least for me, I kind of immediately think of, like, a lot of spanking and very intense discipline, right? Like, you will do everything right, and you will toe the line, and you will not ever, you know, like, ugh. 
this passage can be difficult to understand and even accept depending on your earthly father, because I think there's some things that are assumed. One is that you had an earthly father, right? Like it's kind of speaking that way. Two is that your earthly father was a good father and was doing the best he knew how. And that's just not the case for everyone. Um, I think there are some people who have no earthly father. There are other people who had passive dads who just drank all the time and were basically like passed out all night, who worked all the time and were never home. Um, there are others who had abusive fathers who like used physical, emotional, or mental punishment to like harm them, right? So we kind of have to shift, depending on your background, we have to shift our thinking a little bit here. And as I studied this passage, really trying to understand, like, what is meant by discipline, I think we really want to think more about not like an angry sports dad who's screaming at his kid all the time and making him practice even on his days off and, like, nothing is ever good enough and nothing is ever right. I think we want to think about parenting a toddler and saying to them, if you touch the hot stove, you will get burned, so I can't let you touch the hot stove. And if you continue to touch the hot stove, there's going to be consequences, right? Like saying to a toddler, you cannot run into the street because there are cars. And I love you, and I cannot, it is up to me to not allow you to run into the street. And so I will continue to train you, I will continue to discipline you, I will continue to correct you until you learn not to run into the street, right? It's coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of wanting them to have a, a good life. And um, as I looked into kind of the different viewpoints on this, you know, I have to say John Calvin felt that God is maybe being punitive here, like it's kind of like punishment for punishment's sake. But the early church father Chrysostom and other commentators really felt that a more consistent interpretation is like this idea of instructing and training in righteousness, which is something that we hear in other New Testament books, right? This idea of God correcting us, training us in righteousness. It's discipline that has our best at heart. And so I think we have to own that that's sometimes painful, right? Even things that are good for us. You know, like there are things that Jack wants to do that are fun for him that we can see aren't safe, right? He wants to, like, jump off of something onto, like, a concrete floor. You know, like, I can't let you do that. Um, and I think when we, we think about discipline and why does that discipline hurt, sometimes it hurts because we have to stop things like addictive behaviors that help us cope. Sometimes we have to give up relationships that have become so important to us and where we find a lot of joy, yet we realize, like, this is not who God has called me to be. When I am with this person, I am not the person that God has called me to be, and I need to no longer be in this relationship. Sometimes it's just the pain of looking at ourselves and saying, like, there is sin in my life, there are ways in which I'm operating outside the bounds that God has called me to, and I need to repent and be different, and that's hard. That's painful. It's difficult. And so even though we can trust God's character, we know that he's a good and loving father, and we can accept his discipline, it can still feel hard. But we also know that we find healing and wholeness on this journey when we do. I just have two um, quotes here. I just wanted to kind of thought reframe this in a good way. One is Ann Voskamp. She said, if God does not take us the way to our wants, he is still taking us the way to his heart. I think that just captures God's character. Even when he says no to us, that he's leading us to more of him. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, may God in his mercy lead us through these times, but above all, may he lead us to himself. And so again, this discipline isn't to, to bring sadness or um, pain to us, it's to bring us closer to God and more like Christ. We're gonna um, close here, just looking at verses 12 and 13. It says so in, in Hebrews 12, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees Mark out a straight path for your feet 
so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. Friends, this, this journey is a marathon. Like we said, it's got moments of absolute joy when we summit a steep hill or overcome something that's plagued us for years. Sometimes we find healing in a moment. Other times it's over the course of months or years. It's, it's so much joy when we experience freedom from addiction or sin. But there are also these moments of sorrow when we grieve lo- love the loss of a loved one or a dream that we held on to for years. There's sorrow when we're faced with patterns and habits that are sinful and that harm us and others. But the good news is that we're not on this journey alone, and we can trust the Father who loves us enough to train us and correct us, who loves us too much to leave us just sitting in our sin and our sorrow. So this morning, I want to invite you to cast off the burdens that are weighing you down, to seek healing for your wounds, to address the sin that's tripping you up, to accept the Father's loving discipline, and to ask the Holy Spirit to come and strengthen the grip of your tired hands, to make your knees strong, and to keep your legs moving forward. Ask him to mark out a straight path for you to follow all the way until you go home to Jesus, leaving a path that others can follow, even those who feel so weak and lame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do not journey alone. But most of all, we thank you that your discipline is a discipline of love, that you lead us to Christ-likeness, that you don't leave us sitting in our sin and sorrow, but that you transform us. We thank you for this in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, here at Regen, um, we don't like to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, so we do response time. Um, So as Steph was talking today, um, like the image that kept running through my mind was like, as we are running this race, it is not a sprint, it is a marathon. Um, we see Jesus that is running beside us and he is like our, the, the pace setter, the pace maker, not peacemaker, the pace maker. And um, so that like kind of sets the pace for our life. Um, but we have these times where we like to run ahead of him and we like to sprint. And then there's times where we like slow down. We like have to put like our hands on our knees because we are so out of breath. Um, So my question for you today is um, like, what is that thing that is slowing you down? That's that's making you stop and and take a deep breath. Is it is it um, codependency or idolatry like Steph was talking about? Um, Or is it kind of just running away from the Lord's discipline? Like, what is he trying to prune you from? Um, so if we just take a couple minutes and, um, just spend a little time with the Lord. thank you for being a good and loving father. Um, We thank you that your word says that 
as we run this race of life that um, it produces endurance in us and that endurance produces strength of character and that strength of character it, it produces hope so Jesus I pray that as we are like in the midst of seeking inner healing that you would just bring to our minds like the hope that is in you um, Jesus, we also, we thank you that as we are running and we are slowing down by whatever is weighing us down, we thank you that you are the one that slows down with us. You stop beside us. You let us put our arm around your shoulders and you carry us the rest of the way through. We love you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.